Good morning. You can open your Bibles to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, we'll begin in verse 31. As you open to John chapter 13, I want to make a few comments, begin by thinking with you about the idea of glory. Glory. Is that a Bible word that's disconnected from our society, or is it something part of your everyday life, something you know all about? The answer is that glory is everywhere. It's a part of your life. You love it. It's what people call, call ubiquitous. It's everywhere. So let me give you some examples. Consider the, the little boy, the toddler, who sees something he's impressed with and he looks at it, his eyes bulge, and he says, ooh, and he loves it. Or maybe you walk out in the evening and you see that sunset, the sky is on fire with orange and pink and then purple hues and you see it and you just, it does something to you. You've seen something of glory. But there's more than just that, being amazed or interested. Glory a lot of times also has the idea of weight or weightiness. So for example, people drive from here, 3,000 miles across our country to see the Grand Canyon and our nation's national parks. They go to see the glory. And you can go and you can see the giant redwood trees out in California. Maybe you've heard of the oldest living redwood tree in the world. It's in Sierra Nevada, California. He has a name, his name is President, the oldest living redwood tree in the world. He's about 75 yards tall, so if you take a football field and you flip it up, almost the whole length of the field, that's how tall he is. I said he's the oldest in the world. Take a guess in your mind, how old is President? The answer is, he's about 3,000 years old. Just to give you a category, David was alive 3,000 years ago, so around the time that David was alive, uh, uh, I don't know if redwood trees have acorns or what they have, but whatever they have, seed goes into the ground when David is alive over in Israel. And in California, President Seed goes in the ground. He's been alive ever since then. So if you can imagine going to Sierra Nevada, standing there in front of President, his massive width, he's huge. And then you look up at his skyscraper height. And then you think about his 3,000 year old age and you feel so small and you've seen a little something of the weight of glory. It leaves a dent in you, it affects you. And that's glory the noun, but glory also comes packaged as a verb, an action. That's to glorify, to glorify. And I wanna to introduce to you two ways in which someone can glorify something, two senses that things are glorified or that you can glorify something. The first way is to reveal glory. So you glorify someone by revealing the truth about them, by revealing their glory. And that revelation can be maybe untrue or it can be true. So for untrue, think of maybe a robin sitting on a fence post and there's some threat he sees, maybe some other bird, and he puffs up his feathers and he's trying to reveal his glory, but it's not real, it's a sham. He's just trying to defend himself, but it's a trick. But there's also true revelation of glory, true revealing, and we do this all the time. If you had gone to see President in Sierra Nevada, you would come back and you would show pictures and you would tell people and you would want everyone else to see what was there. You'd wanna glorify him, to use that word. You'd want to reveal his glory. That's the first use of to glorify, to reveal glory, but the second way is to crown with glory or to cause, one dictionary said, to cause to have splendid greatness. So you could think of the coronation of a king, maybe in Britain, the big ceremony, all the pomp, the swelling crowds, everyone is there, the trumpet blasts, all the decorations, all the attention looks up, there's the king, he's up where everybody can see him, they bring the crown, they place it on his head, he sits down on the throne, and he is glorified in the sense of being crowned with glory. So I give you all those examples mainly just to tell you glory and glorification or being glorified are all around. They're a part of everyday life. 
And they're not just things that surround you, they're a part of you. You love glory. You're hardwired by God to hunger for it. You want to see glory, you want to revel in glory, and you want to glorify things. That's why you can't help but telling people about the glorious things that you've seen. It's something in our nature put there by God. So glory's everywhere. It's around you. It's something you hunger for. You can't get away from it. It's a part of your everyday life. And that leads to our sermon text for this morning, which brings us to John 13. I'll begin the reading in verse 31 and continue through verse 38. John chapter 13, verse 31. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Let's pray together. Father, you made us to see glory. Particularly, you made us to see your glory. You infinitely outshine the most glorious thing we have ever seen. The great redwood trees president all their vastness they're nothing one tree you said all the nations are like a drop in a bucket like a speck on the scales they're nothing you are infinitely glorious 3,000 year old tree eternal God without beginning outside of time we're made to see your glory and this text tells us that you've displayed it, you've uncovered it, you've revealed your glory. And especially, chiefly, most acutely, you've done that in your son. And so we come to this text and he says, now is the son of man glorified. So I pray that you would accomplish or fulfill, culminate the reason that you revealed his glory so that we would see it and praise you. We would see it and glorify you, that you would be glorified, you would be honored, you would be made much of, you'd be exalted. Our minds would change in how we think of you. We would stop undervaluing you, being unimpressed, bored, apathetic, lethargic. That we would look into the face of Christ and see glory. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. We'll divide the text into three main parts this morning. First, in verses 31 through 33, Christ's glory. Second, in verse 34 and 35, Christian love. Third, in verse 36 and 38, sinful pride. So first, verse 31 through 33, Christ's glory. We need to get the context just a little bit. The previous context, what's just happened? The text says, there in verse 31, when he, that's Judas, went out. So two weeks ago, we heard about the betrayal. Judas is going to betray Jesus. Jesus knows it. It all goes down, and Judas is propelled out into the darkness to actually carry out the mechanics of the betrayal. 
this all happens at the Passover meal, also known as the Last Supper, the last Passover meal. The lambs have all been slain. All their blood has been spilt. The people are gathered in Jerusalem. And the true Passover lamb is ready to be sacrificed. Second, the upcoming context. Look at verse 31. The very first word of that verse of Jesus' speech is, now. Now. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Now at the moment of betrayal. Now in the dead of night, in the darkness. Now as Jesus is troubled in spirit, we saw in the previous text. That's where we're at. The darkest moment and getting darker as the hours will march on. Now, that's the time that the Son of Man is going to be glorified. And then notice at the end of verse 32, the word immediately. God will glorify him immediately. It means we're here. So we heard in John over and over again that Jesus' hour had not yet come. Not yet, not yet, not yet. And then in these two verses we have now and immediately. So something is fundamentally shifting in the progression of time in Jesus' life and ministry. That's the context. And now this word glorify that we've already been talking about, it shows up five times in verse 31 and 32. It's always the verb, five times in two verses. And I mentioned to you that there are two senses in which someone can glorify something or be glorified. Those are the two senses that John, the writer of this gospel, uses that word. He uses this word and the the, the noun, glory, over and over and over again. But let me just give you two examples, one from each category. The revealing glory first, to make glory visible. John 17, four, Jesus speaking to the Father, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. In other words, Jesus in praying says, I made your glory visible through my life. That's the first way. And then second, to crown with glory. John seven thirty nine. he's talking about, John, John the writer is talking about the Holy Spirit, Jesus has just been talking, and then he gives this editorial comment, John does, He says they didn't have the spirit yet. The spirit wasn't yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus had not yet been crowned with glory. The idea there is that when Jesus is raised from the dead, sits down at God's right hand, he's crowned with glory, he's glorified, and then gives the Holy Spirit. So glory is made visible in John's gospel and people are crowned with glory in John's gospel. I I labor that point because John, or Jesus, uses the word to glorify in both of those senses in these two verses. To make glory visible and to crown with glory. So look at verse 31. Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. It means that his excellence and worth are made known, are being revealed. The now has to do with the progression of time in which Jesus is on the cusp of death. The cross is coming right before him. The resurrection will follow. He is glorified. His glory is about to be put on most acute or brightest display. But it is counterintuitive. I mentioned earlier glory having to do with great and wonderful things, an ancient, amazing tree, a beautiful sunset, the coronation of a king. But I'm saying, and Jesus is saying, his glory is revealed in suffering. It's counterintuitive. We like conquering glory, tough glory, pain-free glory. And that's not the way in our text that Jesus' glory is made known or revealed. That's not where you're going to see it most brightly here, but through suffering. So Don Carson put it this way. The supreme moment of self-disclosure, the greatest moment of displayed glory was in the shame of the cross. God's eternal character that you're made to know. What is he like? 
I want to see his perfections. You should say that. If you want to see his perfections, they're seen most brilliantly in the shame of the cross, in the suffering that Jesus took on himself. That's glory. We need our own definitions of glory redone. But it's more than the excellence of the Son alone that are displayed, that is displayed or revealed. The glory of the Son is the Father's glory. That's the second use of glorify in verse 31. Look at the text. God is glorified in him. That's in Jesus. God is glorified. His glory is revealed, as I've been saying, in Jesus. And we knew it would be this way. Isaiah 49, 3 says this. You, God speaking, are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory. So the Messianic text, Israel prefiguring the Messiah who would come, the true Israel, is the one in whom God will show his glory. That's taught over and over again in the Bible. It's taught repetitively in John's gospel. Because Jesus is one with the Father. The display and worth of the Son is the display of the worth and the perfection of the Father. I know that's so wordy. Let me give you an example. Consider a world-class tennis coach. And he has his best athlete. They train and they train and they train. The athlete can only get as far as the coach can take her. She needs him. And they train and they train and they train and they get to the Olympic, comp- Olympic competition. She takes the stage, she competes at the highest level. The whole world watches and she's magnificent. She's incredible. She's glorious. She perfectly puts into place everything that the coach taught her. Perfect form, perfect strategy, perfect mental toughness, all of it. She puts into place into practice what he put in and there she stands on the podium she's got the gold medal around her neck she's receiving the glory she's being crowned with glory in that moment and she looks over at the coach he's there no one's looking at him but she looks at him what's he thinking is he jealous of her glory he's not because he knows that her glory is his glory The more glorious she is, the more glorious he is. He wants her to get all the glory. The more exalted she is in the world of Olympic competition, the more glorious he is in the world of Olympic coaching. It's not a zero-sum game. He wants her exalted. He's glorified in the same thing. There's something just like that or similar to that going on with the son and the father. The more glory displayed, in and given to Jesus, the more glory is given to the Father. The exaltation of the one is the exaltation of the other. And that's why the text says, God is glorified in him. So in verse 31, Jesus uses the word to glorify, in that first sense, the display of glory, the revealing of glory. His glory is made visible, particularly in suffering, in death, in shame, and then in his resurrection from the dead. And his glory in all of those gospel accomplishments, the revelation of his glory there is the revelation of the glory of God the Father. That's verse 31. And in verse 32, something similar happens, but Jesus changes gears slightly. That's why I began with two different senses of the word to glorify. He's now gonna speak of being made glorious or being crowned with glory. Look at the verse, verse 32. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. There's a, a cause and effect. If Jesus goes to the cross, 
reveals his glory and thereby reveals the Father's glory, accomplishes the salvation of all of his people, if he accomplishes that gospel work, the Father will give him the reward that is rightly due to him or he will crown him with glory. Jesus goes to the cross and he turns up the the brightness of the glory of God like the sun times a thousand so that everybody sees it. God is displayed, Jesus is shown to be a sufficient savior and God will reward him. He will crown him with glory. There will be results of that glory. So Jonathan Edwards describes the way that this works using an analogy of wheat. Jesus used that analogy in chapter 12. He says the results of Jesus' suffering, that would be a church in praise of God forever, for endless eternities, the results are the crowning glory that the Son has. The results are the glory. In what sense? What does that mean? So imagine the grain of wheat. The seed goes in the ground, the little sprig pops out of the earth, it grows, it's a stem, but it doesn't have its glory yet. It grows and grows and eventually it's ripe and it's ready for harvest. And the produce, the end product, is the glory of the wheat. The results are the glory. The way it works is, as Edwards would put it in his 300 years ago way, is that the results communicate his fullness. The church communicates the fullness of Christ. Or he says it another way, the results, the church, abundantly diffuses Jesus' fullness in many streams. Jesus is expressed in the beauty and glory of a great multitude of his spiritual offspring, the church. He will forever be more honored, more glorified, more crowned with glory because of your redemption. You will be there as the results of his suffering for endless eternities and he will be expressed in you, in your life and in your eternal salvation in him. That's why he came. That's what he means in verse 32. The father will glorify the son in himself, the Father will crown him with glory forever in his presence. And he says that it'll happen immediately. We're there now. And that means that it's already happened for us. Sitting here today in Memphis, 2021, he's already been glorified. And if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. But I want to draw out an implication from that word immediately. God will glorify Jesus immediately. He's already been glorified. He's now seated at the right hand of God. He is receiving now the honor due his name. As over thousands of years, more and more people continue to put their faith in him, die, their bodies go in the ground, they go and be with the Lord, and the number of people around the throne praising the Lord Jesus is forever increasing. He's being glorified Now, and if you're not yet a Christian, you need to understand there is a king. He's got all the glory. The coronation has happened. He's at the right hand of God now. He's calling people, calling you to repent, to turn away from sin, to turn away from self, to turn away from your own wisdom. He's calling you to turn away from all of that. You're made for him, not for yourself. He's calling you to turn from that and to trust him to trust that he can bring you to the one who made you without the problem of having sinned against him because he made a way, he did a way with that through his blood on the cross. Immediately, he's been glorified already. God glorified him immediately. The glory of God put on display in the Lord Jesus Christ in shame, in suffering, in lowliness, in bleeding, in death, in crying out, crying out on the cross, the glory of God put on display. And then he turns to his disciples. If he's gonna go through all this, then he turns his attention to them and he tells them he's leaving. Of course he's leaving. 
but he talks like a father figure, leaving his little children. I have to go away now. Look at verse 33. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. That word, little children, little children. Can you imagine Jesus speaking to his disciples, these men that he's loved so well for so long? Those are tender words. He understands they will be hurting when he leaves. He cares about them, and he looks at them, and he says, little children, I'm leaving. You're not gonna be able to come with me. I have to go. He'd said the same thing to the Jews twice before in judgment, twice before in John's gospel. You're not gonna be able to come with me. You're gonna look for me and you won't find me. But now he's saying it to his disciples in gentleness. I have to leave. The cross death is for the Christ alone. Only Jesus can carry out that act of love. And I wanna make a note that Peter, a few verses down, latches on, perhaps understandably, to this idea that Jesus is leaving. But Jesus keeps right on talking and Peter doesn't catch anything that's coming. He just says he's leaving. But Jesus only can carry out that act of love and that leads to our second point, Christian love, verse 34 and 35. Christian love. Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. These are like marching orders. He just told them he's leaving, he's not gonna be there anymore. What are they supposed to do when he's gone? They've been following him. There's no one left to follow, he's leaving. What are they supposed to do when he's gone? Well, he didn't leave them without instruction, he gave them marching orders. He told them what to do, at least here in this text, he tells them that they should love one another. But it's not just another commandment, an additional commandment, he tells them it's a new commandment. A new commandment I give to you. So we're gonna come in just a second to how it's new, what's new about it. But there are some ways that we ought to consider for just a second about how it's not new, because not everything about it is new. What are the ways about, what are the things about it that aren't new? Well, the idea that God's people ought to love each other is not new. That's a very old commandment. In fact, earlier when Jesus had been asked, what's the greatest commandment, do you remember what he says? The first commandment, the greatest, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he follows up. They didn't ask for the second greatest commandment, but he gave it to them. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a quotation from Leviticus from about 1400 years before Jesus came. That is an ancient commandment, love one another. And then in the text in Leviticus, in the context, he says, love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. So there's an authority there, love one another, I am the Lord. The command giver attaches his own authority to the command, do it because I told you to do it, I'm the Lord. But also, the commands of God come because they're consistent with the character of God. Everyone knows the text these days from 1 John, God is love. So that it only makes sense that he would give a command that his people should love. He gives commands that are consistent with his character. So for at least 1400 years, God has been commanding his people to love and there's been a connection with his own character. So that's not new, all that is ancient. Those are ancient facets of the love commandment. Now, in what way is it new? Why does he say a new commandment I give to you? Well, let your eyes fall on verse 34. I don't know what translation you have, but he says this, I'll I'll, I'll let you know. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, and then those next words I have in the NASB, even as, even as, those words, I have loved you that you also love one another. The newness is not the content, love. The newness is in the new standard. Even as I have loved you. So the ESV, you may have the ESV translation, 
that says, just as I have loved you, or the NIV, as I have loved you. The newness is in the new standard, the new comparison, the supreme example, that's new. And that begs the question, how had he loved them? And I'm gonna argue also, how would he love them? He had loved them and he was about to love them. So if you go back and you remember earlier in John 13 when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he gives them this example, this supreme example of humility and service. Serve one another, be the servant. No slave is greater than his master, no uh, employee is greater than his employer. It doesn't work like that. Disciple is not greater than his teacher. If I, the Lord and the teacher, have gotten on my knees and washed your feet, you also should do the same thing. Just as I have served you, you also now serve one another. And in that passage, he had already served them. They saw him wash their feet, and then he said, serve like that. And you know that that washing of the feet pointed forward to the cross. He didn't only mean foot washing. He also meant the kind of serving, the kind of humility and lowliness that he was about to carry out at the cross. And I think you ought to swirl all that together and say that kind of humble sacrificial serving is what he called his disciples to concerning foot washing. Back to our text. How had he loved them and how would he love them? He had loved them in a myriad of ways. He had called them. He had revealed the Father to them. He had patiently taught them when they went astray on repeat. He had rebuked them lovingly when they were in sin. He had loved them tremendously. And he was about to love them in the greatest way anyone ever could. There's no greater love. Nobody has any greater love than this kind that you lay down your life for your friend. It's not possible to love in a greater way than that. And the cross of Christ is the greatest self-sacrificial love imaginable because of the parties involved. For the Lord and the teacher, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, to give his life for sinners to go from great and infinite heights, infinite worth, infinite holiness and goodness for that person to lay his own life down for the most undeserving, for his enemies. There is no greater love than that. It's not possible. And so he says to his disciples, I have a new commandment to give to you. Just like I have loved you, now you love each other. Not the old commandment, love each other. The new way, Look at the example that I'm about to show you in about 12 hours. I'm gonna lay my life down. There's nothing I won't give or lay down in order to do you good. There's nothing, I have no limits. That kind of love, just like that, or just as I have loved you, love one another. That's his new commandment. The mighty standard of the cross of Christ is the standard by which you are called to love the people in this room. That's the standard. Well, what does it mean to love one another? There's a lot of confusion about that in our day and age. Love, how is it defined? What is it? How do you know if you're loving somebody or not? Love in the Bible is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. There may be feelings, but love itself, properly speaking, is not a feeling. Love is what you do to people. It's an action. It's how you treat them. So in Philippians 2, there's a pretty clear example where Paul draws on the example of Christ, his humility, and then he says this little phrase that I think is insightful on helping us just briefly to understand what love is, what it means, what are we talking about? He says, do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Don't just serve yourself. Don't just look after you. Take your head and turn it away from yourself. Look out at that person and how can you consider their interest? Now you have to rightly define and understand their interests. What they need chiefly is God. They need him. They have to know him. If you want to love them, you should give them whatever is the very best thing for them. But 
At minimum, you have to see to love someone is to consider them, consider how to help them, how to do good to them, and then put into action, remember I said not a feeling, put into action whatever is necessary, whether it costs you or not, no matter what it costs you, whatever has to be done to help them, to do them good. That's what's behind Paul's word, edification. You do whatever you can to build them up. You don't serve yourself. You don't help yourself. You look to them and their needs and you serve them just the way that Christ did it. It's exactly what he did in dying on the cross for our salvation. And you might say that that command is too high. That's unattainable. Who among us can meet that command? But Jesus' next sentence will not let you go there. He says that people who receive his great love must end up loving with that same love. There's an irreducible outflow. Love comes in, it must come out. No way around it. Look at verse 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. What's the this? How will they know? If you have love for one another. His love makes an indelible mark, an unavoidable dent gets made in your heart and you are fundamentally changed. It is the defining characteristic of being a disciple of Jesus given here on the night before Jesus died. A gospel birthed love for the rest of God's children, warts and all. Jesus did not promise that the people whom his disciples would love would be perfect or easy to love. They would not be sinless. Consider the Apostle Paul in his letters to churches like the Corinthians. They're often pointed out, like I'm doing now as a church, with all kinds of issues and problems. They had factions, they had immorality, they were suing each other before the secular governments, all kinds of awful things. And that's part of the point. If you read the way Paul talked to them, his heart is just bleeding all over the page because he loves them. They're horrible to him. You can read the way that they're suspicious of him and he's trying to help them. They're trying to do him wrong and he's in return trying to help them. He wants to build them up. He's not considering his own needs. He's after helping them. He loves them even with all their problems. And Jesus says, if you're his disciple, you too will love the rest of his disciples. Who's gonna see it? The world will see it. All men, the text says. Your love for the people in this room is meant to be a credit to the truthfulness of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Tertullian, second and third century church father, he commented on this. And in his day, he's making a positive comment because the people of the church were loving each other and the world was observing it. They saw this unique, selfless love that the church had for one another. So here's what he said. See, they say, how they love one another, how they are ready even to die for one another. The world is amazed. Their jaws drop. I've never seen people love like that. But on the flip side, John Chrysostom, fourth century church father, he lamented the condition in his day of lovelessness in the church and the way that the world saw the lovelessness. They see either way. Here's what he said. Even now, there is nothing else that causes the heathen to stumble except that there is no love. Their own doctrines they have long condemned and in like manner they admire ours but they are hindered by our mode of life. Jesus linked love, one of you for the other, as the mark of being his disciple. And he said, all men, the world outside, will know that you're my disciple by the love. If it's not there, it lies to the world. So how are we doing? And I say we, not you. I don't mean think of your life 
and are you loving other people? That would be a very legitimate question. That's not what I'm asking now. I want you to think about this church, about us, the congregation. How are we doing? I want us to take responsibility for each other. Think about our church. Are we marked by love one for the other? Is that the reputation that the world outside has in their mind when they think about us? Are we more like Tertullian's day and the world is amazed? See how they love each other. Or more like Chrysostom, the world outside stumbles because of our mode of life. How are we doing? I'll tell you, I'm often stunned by the way I see love one for another carried out in this church all the time. I've been a member of this church for 12 years apart from some time in North Carolina but I've been here a long time and I've seen some of the most amazing love one Christian to another ever. I can't think of any other place that I've seen gospel love in the heart of a Christian, some of you, be transferred out to another Christian. So examples Service, people are sick, you flock to their aid. People need help, you flock to their aid. There are exceptions, I understand that. But love, one for another, is everywhere here among you. Discipleship relationships, I mentioned the greatest good you can do for someone is to help them know God and see his glory and be well in him, to make progress and joy in the faith. There's all kinds of discipleship relationships going on in this congregation where you're taking your own time, gladly with joy and eagerness to try and help another person along in their walk of faith. That's called love. It's everywhere here among you and I praise God for it. But if there are ways that in this church we are not marked by love, the name of Christ is being dragged through the mud. Think about it. What does the world think when they see the people of God biting and devouring one another? Oh, they're just like us. They're no different than anybody else. They stumble. It's not a credit to the truth of the resurrection from the dead, and God forbid that lovelessness among us contributes to a person rejecting Christ. That's what we're talking about. It doesn't get much more serious than that. Chrysostom said that lovelessness as our way of life hinders unbelievers from seeing the great love of God in the gospel. So what should we do? On one hand, where there is love, one for another, we ought to praise God for it and we ought to fan the flame. You ought to be a part of it. You ought to give yourself in love for other people. And where there's lovelessness, what do we do? Do I want to heap condemnation on you? I do not. What do you do when you sin? You repent. You confess it to God. You tell him, Lord, you can pray like this, Lord. There are some places in our congregation that I'm burdened for. I wanna bring those before you. You know them now. You know them already. We confess them. Forgive us in Jesus' name. Thank you for loving us even though we've sinned against you this way. Now change us. That's what you do. You repent. That's what repentance looks like. Confess your sins. Trust that he loves you even through them and will change you. That's the way that Jesus was glorified, right? I said he's been glorified in the suffering and shame of the cross. Now is the Son of Man glorified? Now when? Now at the betrayal, now at the cross. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And now we too are meant to glorify God in the same way, by those kinds of acts of love, those selfless, giving, help you kinds of acts of love. We're to glorify God that way. Well, Jesus told his disciples three things so far. He told them his hour had come to be glorified. He told them that they wouldn't be able to come with him. They had to remain behind for now and that they should love one another. And I mentioned before that Peter gets involved, as he often does. He interjects. It's our third and final point, sinful pride, verse 36 through 38. I want to make a a note to you that there's a switch to the singulars, All the yous 
you should love one another, all those prior to this part with Peter here were in the plural. He's talking to all the disciples. English is a little confusing. Usually English is crystal clear. The you, you can't tell if it's you or y'all. Well, all the ones before this are y'all, plural. But in verse 36, they're all singular. And the idea is Jesus is talking directly to Peter particularly. And Peter is zoned in, as I mentioned before, on Jesus' departure. So Jesus has just been telling them, love one another. The world will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Love, love, love. And Peter says, where are you going? Where are you going? Jesus had said he was leaving, and maybe this has happened to you in a conversation before. You're talking to somebody, and they say something that just floors you, and they keep talking, but you don't hear anything they say because what they just said has just exploded your brain. You got, there's nothing you can do. You're just zoned in on that one thing that they just said. That's what happened to Peter. Peter wants to know where Jesus is going because he wants to follow him there. And Jesus doesn't answer the question about where. Instead, he turns the, the question to having to do with timing. He starts talking about timing. You can't come where I'm going just yet, but you will follow later. So Peter says where, and Jesus says when. There's an irony here with Peter on the question of timing, glorifying God and death. It all swirls together. So we saw that Jesus would glorify God in death, and we find out at the end of John's gospel that Peter will glorify God in his own death. John 21, 19. Now this Jesus said, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. That's what Jesus is talking about here, much less explicit. John says it, like an editorial comment at the end of the gospel. Jesus is saying it right to Peter here. Verse 36, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. Peter's gonna glorify God later. He's not ready to hear that yet. Jesus doesn't tell him everything yet. He also doesn't tell him where he's going. Peter's not satisfied. He says, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? He's arguing with Jesus. He's pushing back. It's not going well. And then Peter makes that fatal assumption. I will lay down my life for you. He means by that, there's nowhere that you can go that I won't follow you. There's no price I'm unwilling to pay. I will lay down my life for you. I'll do it right now. I'm ready. I have no exceptions, no eject button, nothing. I can follow you. You said I can't. I'm saying I can because I'm willing to die for you. So imagine the scene. They're at the Last Supper, the Passover meal. There's nobody but friendlies around. Jesus and his disciples, no danger. They're sharing a meal. And Peter's talking big talk. The talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. It won't be the same later in the garden when there's soldiers clanking swords, torches. They're outside like a, like a rabbit being hunted. Peter's gonna feel like that later and he won't be so bold. He's assuming things about his own moral constitution, his own moral character. Consider that Jesus is about to suffer and die because of the wickedness of the human heart. That's why he's dying. And Peter has no idea that that wickedness is as bad as it is. He thinks, I'll die, sure, yeah, I'll do it. Have you ever made an assumption like that? I know you have. Maybe you can't call one up now, but we all do it all the time. We all think that we'll do better than we end up actually doing when the time comes, especially when the heat gets turned up and there are real consequences. Jesus knows Peter, he always does, and he shuts Peter down. Look at verse 38, it's our last verse. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Will you? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Jesus puts a hard stop to Peter's arguing, his arrogant speech, Praise God that he stopped him. 
an act of love. He could have let him go on saying these things that he would regret bitterly later. But he stopped him. I mentioned last time, two weeks ago, that that phrase, truly, truly, I say to you, it's an attention getter. I'm about to say something serious. I'm not mincing any words. Listen up. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster won't cry until you denied me three times. What's the rooster about? The rooster crows in the morning. The idea is it's going to be tonight. Before this night is even over, you're going to deny me. And then three times. Why three times? Finality. Certainty. There was no accident. No single moment of frailty and faltering. No, no. Three full times emphatically. You can read the accounts when Peter denies. He begins to curse and swear, I do not know the man. Three times, no accident. You will deny me with a full throat. You, you'll deny you know me. That had to be an awfully sober moment for Peter. He does not argue back after Jesus says that. Why is Jesus telling Peter all of this? He's not just arguing with him to prove himself right, like a, a trite sort of petty argument. He could have said nothing. He could have let Peter find out for himself. It would have happened whether or not Jesus told him it would happen. But he told Peter in advance he let Peter know that he knew it was going to happen. Why? Well, we don't know for sure. The text doesn't tell us exactly for sure, but maybe he wanted Peter, when the time came that he did deny Christ, that Jesus knew it was coming. Think about Peter's perspective. He did tell me I would do this. And he didn't treat him like Judas. Peter could have confidence that Jesus knew his sin and loved him. So later, Peter will, or Jesus will circle around and he'll talk to Peter. He'll come back to him after the resurrection from the dead and he'll talk to him and he'll, people say, restore him. And Peter will be able to know he knows my heart. He knows the wickedness of my heart. He knows it more than I do. Certainly that's true in Peter's case. He didn't know the wickedness of his heart. Jesus knew it full well. He knows my heart and he loves me still. Friends, that is the truth for you today. He knows. You, without a doubt, underestimate the sinfulness of your own heart. Some of you feel acutely the sinfulness of your own heart. Some of you do not. No matter where you are, you underestimate the sinfulness of your own heart. Jesus does not underestimate the sinfulness of your heart. He knows it full well. He knew it when he was hanging on the cross and dying for you. That's the kind of love that's in the heart of Christ is a full knowledge of the evil of your own heart and he loves you still. And Peter would find that out not too long from now. I wanna make one more note by way of application here about Peter and Jesus and the conversation that they had. And then we'll close. Jesus did not stop Peter from sinning. He just told him in advance that it would happen. But he didn't stop him. Some have purported a doctrine called sinless perfectionism, the idea that this side of heaven, Christians, can be totally free from sin such that they no longer sin. That is not true. The Bible does not teach that. You will not find that in the pages of Scripture. But the implication is that in God's mysterious and all-wise providence, he doesn't stop all of us from sinning entirely. Not yet. And if you consider practically what that means... It means that you will sin again and God, in his wisdom, isn't going to stop you. Or maybe from another angle, other people in your life will sin against you and God has not promised to stop them from doing it yet. That's not a promise that we get. We get all kinds of wonderful promises. God will be with us in suffering. We have been fundamentally changed and delivered from sin. We're in the new covenant. We have the Holy Spirit given to us so we're no longer slaves to sin. We're not dominated by sin. We have a new heart. We're able to walk in obedience to his commands in a new fundamental kind of way like Romans 6. We're freed from sin. We're not a slave. We're a slave to God. 
Those are all true. They're tremendous promises. But until Jesus comes back, all of us will continue to be variously bruised and cut by sin, both our own and the sin of others. Jesus told Peter that he would deny him and it came to pass. So maybe you're suffering the consequences of your own sin. That is not an indication that Jesus is not faithful to you. Jesus was perfectly faithful to Peter who sinned grievously. Or maybe you've been wounded by the sin of someone else. Surely we all have. Maybe you feel it acutely. You've been wounded by someone else's sin and God did not stop them from sinning against you. That also is not an indication that Jesus is not on the throne, not faithful to you. He just hasn't promised to deliver us from sin and all of its effects until he returns. Romans 8 puts it so wonderfully. He ties, Paul does, all these things together. He mentions all these awful sufferings. Just like sheep were put to death, were slaughtered like sheep for your sake. Nakedness, peril, sword, hunger, famine, all of these awful things. Think about what he's saying. Famine means you're starving to death. Nakedness means you're totally destitute. Sword means people are killing you. It doesn't get any worse, practically speaking. Probably none of us have ever been in any of those situations. And then he says, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. In being killed, we conquer. In famine, we conquer. In peril, in nakedness, destitution, in all of that, he will be with us and we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. All the hard and horrible things, and they are hard and horrible, are inside the sovereign plan of God. Peter's horrible denials were inside the sovereign plan of God. And Romans 8 would be true for Peter. Even the three denials, God worked them together for Peter's good because he loved him. God knows. Your father knows. He cares. The night won't last forever. I'm gonna end with a picture that Paul gives in the book of Romans. He's talking about living as in the day. Don't live as though it's still night. Live as in the day. Take off all the evening clothes and the darkness. Get rid of all that. Put on Christ. Live in the day. And the picture is we live in a particular moment in time, metaphorically speaking. So tonight, if God wills, the sun will go down and it'll be pitch black all night. And then there'll be a moment about half an hour before sunrise that the light starts to be just barely visible. You can barely tell the sun is about to come up. It's no longer pitch black, but it's still really dark. And Paul uses that analogy. I can't remember if it's chapter 13 or 14, but he uses this analogy to say, the night is passing away. The day is at hand. And the idea is that Jesus has already risen from the dead. The decisive, the final piece of the puzzle by which you will be delivered from anything you need to be delivered from, suffering in a corrupted world, your own sin, the sin of other people, and on and on, you'll be delivered from all of them because Jesus rose from the dead. And it's like we're living in the age in which the sun is just about to come up over the horizon and shine in all its full strength and light up all the landscape. That's where we're at. And any minute, Jesus will return and you'll see his face and it'll all be made right. Like you're in the woods at night, it's dark, it's terrible, scary, you don't know what's going on and then the sun comes up and boom, full, complete deliverance. You can see it's radiant, glorious. You feel the relief of it all. That's what's coming. Jesus is coming back and it'll be like that. Just like God was glorified as Jesus suffered on the cross, he's also glorified as we, this congregation, love one another. And he's glorified in your life 
both in the way he redeems you from sin and in the way he works all the hard parts, the sufferings, the pains, whatever the details are in your life, he works them all together for your good and so he's glorified in your life and you overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved you. Let's pray. Father, we need to see your glory. Thank you for Christ who went as low as anyone could ever go for his people, for us. He knew shame, pain, suffering, your good and right anger and wrath. He knew all of it for our redemption. He loved us and he loves us still. And I pray that you would make us a people who continue to trust what you say more than our own experience. When we sin, help us to believe that you still love us because our behavior doesn't determine you, doesn't change you. You love us, you'll continue to sanctify us, you forgive us of our sin in Jesus' name. And then make us, as we continue to sit there at your feet and be loved, even though we don't deserve it, make us then turn around and love each other. And we pray that the world would see it and they'll say, ah, wow, there's love like I've never seen before. There's something supernatural. Those people love each other. Make it so, Lord, and help us to trust you in the midst of trials, in the midst of our own sin, in the midst of other people's sin. Make us trust you in the middle of all of it. Make us reckon to be true what you have said is true that you work all things together for good. You worked Peter's denials for his good. You work all the details of our lives, even our own sin, for good for those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.